Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good evening, everyone. It is Tuesday, May the 17th, 2022. It is currently 7.42 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from Abilene, Texas. Before I say anything else, if for some reason you haven't seen the title of this episode, if you have not been a part of us for part one, part two, part three, you see, I believe this is now, this is either part five or part four. Now, this is part, uh, this would be part five. If you weren't with us for the first four parts, then I just need to go ahead and offer the warning once again. We're going to be dealing with a very adult-like, uh, I'll put it this way, we'll be dealing with a sub subjects that may be more suitable for an older, mature audience, not for young children. We're going to be dealing with things related to sexual violence, sexual sin, and we will address it in a very direct and blunt way. So if for any reason you do not want your children to hear or you think they're not ready, you make that decision. I'm just giving you a heads up now so that you can either hit pause, you can just turn this off, you can come back and listen. If you feel that you yourself could be offended by it, I'm giving you every opportunity right now to, to stop this and choose a different program or do whatever you need to do. But we're, we're dealing with the subject of sexual violence. That's what we're dealing with. And the reason we're dealing with it is because we keep seeing story after story after story within the news about what's happening in many churches dealing with sexual uh, violence, whether it's sexual abuse, sexual harassment, molestation of children, whatever, S sexual violence, sexual crimes, horrible things and time and time again not only are these things are not only are these things happening within the church time and time again the church doesn't seem to have any idea how to handle these situations and handles it in an absolutely confused messed up way. And, and we could go through some of the news stories. I mean, really, I could turn on every episode and start with another news story about, did you hear what happened? Did you hear the things that were going on at Liberty University? I mean, we could we could just talk about news story after news story after news story. But I, I'm not here to talk about that so much. What I'm here to talk about is the church should be better equipped and better prepared, not only to have very blunt conversations in regards to sexual violence, but we should be more prepared in how to handle it when it occurs, because I don't know if you're aware of this, the Bible speaks of sexual violence and horrible things related to sexual, all kinds of different things related to, to sexual sin throughout the Bible. And time and time again, it's God's people involved in the, in the sin, involved in the activities. It's, it's people that we may believe are godly or heroes of the faith involved in some very messed up situations, and we've already looked at a number of them previously in part one, part two, and part three. Now, the last time we were in this series, it was April the 23rd, 2022. April the 23rd, 2022, and that was when we did the episode Sexual Violence in the Bible, part four. So it's been almost a month, and I apologize for that. But if you listen to this podcast, Theology Central, you know that we're constantly, I mean, I'm putting out episode after episode after episode. We, we, we always have a series going on here, or another series, or, we, or we're dealing with this. There's, there's so much content that we put out that it can be very difficult 
to maintain that discipline to go, okay, I got I to gotta stay with this series. But wait a minute, I need to go to that series. Wait, we need to start a new series. Wait, we need to talk about this. Wait, this just happened. Wait, this is going on. There's always, look, there's far more things to talk about than I have time to talk about them, even if I was broadcasting 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I know you think that's an exaggeration, but there's just so much to talk about. But I apologize for that. But here we are this evening on a Tuesday. It's now 7.46 p.m. Central Time, and we're going to turn our attention back to the Bible and back to a story that very much involves sexual sin, sexual violence, and just a a host of just some really messed up situations. It's a story that should make everyone uncomfortable to some level, but I'm always interested in how churches preach it. I I I think... that that's something that I think is that's kind of something that as we've been going through this series, I don't know how much I've articulated it in previous episodes, but it's something that's just I, I guess it's been on my mind for a long time. I'm always sometimes interested, curious, confused, bothered, sometimes even angered, and how many churches handle passages in the Bible that seem to explicitly will demonstrate maybe something along the lines of sexual violence or is explicitly talking about that That in many cases, the church, the way they just kind of gloss over it or they don't really want to touch it. And I, in some ways I understand because I know it can be very difficult and like, okay, I'm standing behind the pulpit. It's a Sunday. There's, there's people of all different walks of life there. How am I going to handle this subject? I think what we have to do is when we know we're coming to a passage, that really deals with some possible very difficult things related to sex and sexual violence, instead of glossing over it or just kind of, you know, driving around the issue, we give everyone a warning, hey, two weeks from now, Sunday evening or a Wednesday night, whenever it's going to be, we're going to be dealing with something very serious that deals with sexual violence. And we're giving you notice, we're warning there's going to be, uh, you know, We're going to have some classes for the children so that they can go to that. So you don't have to worry about that. So we're going to provide you an opportunity, but we need you to know we're going to hit these subjects face on. We're not going to drive around it. We're going to drive right into it. Whether it offends you, whether you like it, whether it makes you uncomfortable, we're going to talk about it. Because if we don't look, first of all, it's in God's word. So we have to talk about it. And second, as long as we keep, you know, we can't really talk about this in a direct way, then when are we ever going to learn and and how to handle many of these issues? Because again, these issues, typically stories in the Bible where you have, I mean, we talked about Abram and Hagar and Sarai. I mean, that story, I mean, there's some problems with that. There's some problems with that. We, I mean, we, we, yeah, I mean, we had to deal with it, right? So um, if we're, and it deals with heroes of the faith, we, if we're not willing to look at these stories and be honest with them, then I just think we create a situation where we just can't be honest with ourselves and and know how to deal with many of these situations. But here's what we're going to do something a little different tonight. Now, this is probably going to take two, three episodes. I don't know how long it's going to take, but here's what happened. Uh, The other day, I don't even know what day it was. I grabbed my iPad. I'm like, you know what? 
Um, I think it was like an afternoon, maybe it had been early evening. You know, it's time for me to do, I need some spiritual food, some kind of spiritual nourishment. I tried to have a morning, you know, a morning spiritual meal, an afternoon spiritual meal, an evening spiritual meal, and a late night spiritual meal. Now, sometimes those are just nothing more than little snacks, a little devotional. Sometimes it's a full, a full, you know, full blown theological lecture. Sometimes it's a sermon. But I'm always, I, you know, I subscribe to like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of churches and Christian podcasts. It pro- maybe even close to a thousand. It's just I subscribe to anything and everything. Okay, I don't always agree with everything but I subscribe to it to hear what's going on within the body of Christ and just to always have something ready to go that I can listen to. I may completely disagree with it, but then that challenges me to spend time in God's word going, okay, okay, I disagreed with that. Now I've got to think about this and meditate on it. It's just, I like the ability to have spiritual food right there at my fingertips, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's the amazing world in which we live and we should take full advantage of it. So I subscribe to everything. And I was looking and I'm like, oh, there's, there's a sermon. Mm, it deals with the book of Genesis and it deals with sexual sin and it deals with a chapter and a story that I think definitely contains some issues of sexual violence. Huh. I, I wonder how they handled it because this pastor is, well, extremely well known, not well liked by a lot of people, surrounded in controversy. A lot of people believe he shouldn't even be a pastor, but that's irrelevant to me. He's a well-known pastor. A church, I think, has over a thousand people attend. I'd have to look, maybe a little less, but I mean, it has hundreds and hundreds of people who attend it. He's still very relevant and very popular and still, well, you know, talked about. Maybe a lot, maybe he has a lot of people who dislike him, but the point is he's still there, somewhat relevant in the, the church world in 2022, and he's dealing with a passage about it. So it's not really about the personality. It's not really about the, the name of the preacher. It's about the fact that here's a recent sermon preached in a large church dealing with a passage that very much involves sexual sin and sexual violence. So we're going to review it and we're going to take it apart. We're going to review it. We're going to analyze it and uh, we'll just see how they handle it, handle it because it will be an example of how, well, at least one church handles this kind of of scripture. So if you have your Bibles open, open to Genesis chapter 19. Genesis chapter 19. And for this sermon, we're going to be uh, traveling to Arizona. Scottsdale, Arizona, I believe is the name of the place. Trinity Church. And you're going to know the name of the individual, Mark Driscoll. Whether you like him, whether you hate him, that's irrelevant. It's not the person. It's the fact that he's preaching on a text that very much deals with this series on sexual violence. It's just the one I came across. I'm not saying that there aren't better sermons out there. It's just, it's the one I came across. So as soon as I got ready to hit play, I'm like, nope, nope, nope. Don't listen to it. Let's use it for a sermon review. And this is the perfect place to do that sermon review. If you don't know how my sermon reviews work, I don't listen to them prior because that would then make this like I have rehearsed my responses. It's me saying, hey guys, We've been talking about sexual violence. Here's a sermon that deals with it. Yes, it may be by a pastor that you don't care for, but let's at least hear how he handles this subject. And then I'll just keep breaking in and offering my own thoughts and my own perspective. So you'll hear his perspective. You'll hear my perspective. And hopefully between those two, you'll gain a hopefully an enlightened 
perspective before all of this is over. So are you ready? Scottsdale, Arizona, Mark Driscoll, Trinity Church. This was preached recently, I think within the last couple of weeks, um, and he, because he's doing a series through the book of Genesis, and well, they arrived at this part, and I think, I can't remember the name of it, it's something about, uh, does, um, I, yeah, I don't have the name of it, some, does God condemn our sexual sin, or something along those lines, but we'll see, uh, we'll see what he has to say in regards to this, and uh, here we go, I'm going to play everything, I'm going to play their intro, I'm going to play everything, because I don't like anyone to ever accuse me of taking any of these things out of context, so here we Hello, this is Ashley Chase welcoming you to the Mark Driscoll Podcast. For more content from my dad, Pastor Mark, Senior Pastor here at the Trinity Church in Scottsdale, Arizona, visit realfaith.com, where you'll find study guides to go along with each sermon series as he preaches verse by verse through books of the Bible, daily devotions, free ebooks, and more. Now grab your Bibles and get ready for today's sermon. Is God tolerant of our sexual sin? That's the topic this week. Uh, my name is Pastor Mark Driscoll. I've been teaching through the Bible for, I think this is the 26th year. And I like to teach through books of the Bible. We're in the book of Genesis. and we. So is God tolerant of our sexual sin? I am going to reduce the volume a little bit. It's funny. Um, and most of the time when we review sermons, I, I have to crank the volume to 100 because for some weird reason, churches seem to record their volumes at the lowest possible levels possible. Clearly, Mark Driscoll doesn't, okay? Clearly, he records his sermon uh, at a very uh, 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 a louder volume, and then therefore, the average person can just turn down the volume. So I turned it down, so hopefully it won't continue to blow your eardrums out. Here we go. Hit Genesis 18 and 19 this week, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And God's word isn't just um, about what happened, but it's about what always happens. And God's word isn't old, it's timeless, so it's always timely. And it's really curious. Um, I tend to pick books of the Bible about a year in advance, lay out my preaching calendar. And what I've found for 26 years is that if you're in the scriptures, what happens in the culture absolutely is confronted by the scriptures, and it's no different. Uh, we'll get to it in a moment, but the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is one in which um, people are judged by God, if you believe the storyline of the Bible, for sexual sin. And what's happening right now is in the culture, there is a very loud, very heated conflict and debate uh, regarding human sexuality and what would be called transgenderism, homosexuality, and the gender spectrum. And what's really curious is right now, at the forefront of this conflict is, of all corporations, Disney. So they have removed boys, girls, ladies, gentlemen, male, female from their parks because they want to eradicate traditional Christian, biblical, God-given gender categories. Uh, in addition, there was a parental bill that arose in Florida uh, that was seeking to establish parental rights for the sex education of their own children. And the schools were pushing a very progressive uh, sexual agenda for children as young 
young as five, six, seven years of age, telling them to explore their sexuality, their genitalia, and their gender identity. Not surprisingly, many parents recoiled and said it's too early, it's predatorial. In addition, this should be parental and not educational. And so it led to a great conflict. And Disney, in the side of the fight, sought to side against the parents and with the government. And so what this has led to is uh, there was recently uh, the release of uh, a conference call with the executive producer Latoya Ravenel from uh, Disney. She talks about the, quote, not at all secret gay agenda and said she was, quote, adding queerness for kids anywhere she could in Disney and their various platforms and products. Uh, Disney corporate president uh, Carrie Burke says, quote, as the mother of one transgender child and one pansexual child. Uh, She then goes on to say that she would like to see 50% of characters in Disney products be LGBTQIA and or racial minorities. There is, of course, an agenda. The backlash and the conflict is real. Now, this is interesting because it's obviously we're going to be in Genesis 19. And he, now on one hand, he's doing something very interesting just from a preaching perspective. We're getting ready to go, you could say, an ancient text. I mean, we're going all the way back to Genesis 19. And so what he does is he be, before he actually gets into the text, he presents to everyone a very modern day current situation happening within the culture. By doing that, it then demonstrates this ancient text has something to say that would relate very much to the current situation going on within the culture. All right, that's that's a good idea just from a preaching perspective, right? Because someone could be like, you know, I don't really care when Genesis, whatever. But when you connect it to a something happening within the culture, people, their ears will, per, will in many cases, perk up because they're like, oh, I'm very aware of this. I'm hearing all of the controversy, everyone yelling about Disney. Okay, okay, I, yeah, I'm, I'm going to hear about this. So, so what is he going to preach? What is he going to preach that has some connection to this Disney situation, to the current situation in culture with homosexuality, gender, LGBTQ. I can't remember the uh, additional letters he uh, added there. Was it IA? I can't remember. But the um, all of the different letters that are added to that particular movement. So it's an interesting perspective from just, it's a, it's an interesting approach. Oh, not even interesting. It's probably a somewhat clever approach to do that in preaching, to try to make sure the people understand that what you're getting ready to preach is very relevant to the times in which you're living. Okay, I have no problem with that. However, I want you to just think about this. As we go through Genesis 19, as we listen to what he has to say, I want to ask you, is, should, because I, th- I think... I think churches do this all the time, but I'm going to ask it as a question. I almost want to just make it as a dogmatic statement, but let me ask you as a question. As you read through Genesis 19, through the entire story, should the focus be only on the sin of homosexuality or the sin of what some would refer to as sodomy? Should it only be on that sin? Because for some reason, Genesis 19, the sin that gets all of the attention seems to be the sin of homosexuality, the sin of sodomy. Is there plenty of sin to go around in Genesis 19? And does all of it involve 
wicked homosexuals, or does it involve someone who is called righteous in the New Testament? Right? Because I think he by by putting forth this modern example, he's almost now just getting us, he's turning the focus to issues pertaining to the to homosexuality. That's where he's he's turning the focus. And so in some cases, I don't know, I like I think it's clever what he's doing because he's giving you a, a that hey, what we're getting ready to study is very relevant to the culture, but in a sense, it's adding kind of a presupposition to the text, right? You see all the things going on about LGBTQ and homosexuality in 2022? Well, we're going to go back to Genesis 19. And guess what? You need to look what it has to say in regards to homosexuality. I could argue maybe we should just forget about homosexuality. Just read Genesis 19 and see all the different issues surrounding sexual sin and violence. And not all of it is directed at homosexuality. I mean, I don't know. Do you feel that all the sin gets equal attention in Genesis 19? Or do you think in most of the preaching you've heard, it's always homosexuality that gets elevated above all the others? I mean, I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm wrong here. I'm more than admitted. But I mean, he seems to clearly be pushing people in that direction. Hey, you see what's going on in culture? Now let's go to Genesis 19. That almost just in a sense, gets you ready to go, okay, what, what does it got to say about homosexuality? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he, maybe he's going to cover all of it, but this opening, you know, this opening, this opening introduction to his sermon seeming is seemingly to paint the picture in that particular way. I could be wrong. Remember, I'm, I'm, re, I'm uh, reacting in real time, at not based on anything I've heard before, because if I heard it before, then my responses would be rehearsed, and I don't like that. But when I'm reacting in real time, I'm just giving you what I'm thinking, and 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 it may, the sermon may go in a completely different direction than I'm thinking right now. But there's a part of me that says, "Whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute." I think there's a lot of sin here in Genesis 19. I don't think it's just homosexuality, and you're clearly leading us in the direction to focus on homosexuality, which could actually be harmful to how we interpret the text. You, you, you can tell me what you think. Here we go. Erica Anderson is someone who is 71 years of age. They are transgender, a longtime transgender advocate, uh, also trained as a psychologist on the forefront, having helped hundreds of teenagers transition in their gender reassignment. Uh, also, as a psychologist, is a member or was a member of the American Psychological Association Committee writing the guidelines for transgender health care. Here's a transgender person given their whole life to transgender issues, transgender psychological and medical care, and they say, quote, it's gone too far. It's now gone from trying to help kids who have these desires or inclinations to, um, in my words, bullying, pushing, pressuring kids who are not transgender to at least explore a lifestyle that is not consistent with who they really are. And so they are saying, and this person is saying, it's now become trendy. And what we're seeing from education to political agendas to social media platforms and also to uh, bullying and 
fear of man and peer pressure is pushing an entire generation towards homosexuality, toward uh, transgenderism, toward lesbianism and such. And during the past few years, things have gotten even worse, especially for young people, because with COVID, many of their uh, schools were closed. They were forced online. They were studying online. So then that means they're spending more time in social media and they are being more pressured by the social media platforms. Well, what does this have to do with Genesis? Well, Thus far in Genesis, in the first chapters, uh, we saw that everything begins with God, and you don't understand anyone or anything unless you begin with God, and that God made us male and female in his image and likeness. So sex is binary, male and female. That's Genesis 1 and 2. Now, again, he, he's, he's taking something current, and he's making you realize that what we're studying in this ancient book of Genesis is very relevant. Again, very clever, very smart. You would learn this in a lot of preaching classes. My concern here is, though, he's definitely made us like, okay, so what does this have to do with Genesis? He's turned, so everything he's looking at in Genesis now, he's going to focus on how it relates to transgenderism and homosexuality. And again, I just think there's something, I think there's some things going on in Genesis 19 that has, that, that goes, that's just as serious an issue as the homosexuality. But again, so it, it seems to me that homosexuality always seems to get pushed to the forefront here. Now, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he's not going to do that, but it just, that whole introduction, and now he immediately goes from that entire, the only sexual sins he referred to there was uh, lesbianism, homosexuality, tra transgenderism, that like, that's what he focused on, right? That, that was all that he focused on. And now, we're, now, not, what does this have to do with Genesis? Well, he's going to go through Genesis and get us to Genesis 19. Okay, I, I think there's a lot of sexual sins, a lot of sexual sins, a lot of sexual violence issues that, well, Genesis would be very relevant to, correct? I, I mean, is it just me? Well, let's see here. Let, again, it's just, I, I guess it's, I guess my, my thing, because I listen to so many sermons, but I, I'll make it fair. I do this with everything. This is not to be critical. I just analyze everything. I do when I watch movies, I usually have a notebook and I take notes and I analyze it. Music, I'm always analyzing the lyrics. It books, I analyze, analyze. So I'm just breaking it down that okay, the illustration, I'm I'm applauding the good part. He's trying to make you realize that what we're getting ready to learn about is relevant to the culture. Okay, that's great. But I think that there's just a little bit of danger here cuz it's getting me thinking about transgender and homosexuality which leads that would almost builds kind of a, a presupposition that I'm going to read into Genesis 19 so that the homosexuality is going to stand out more than the other issues. That, that's my concern. Maybe all of that concern is being wasted and it's of no value. Only time will tell. Here we go. In addition, gender is binary. Males are to be masculine. Females are to be feminine. Marriage is for one man and one woman in a covenant that is consummated. And number four, sexuality is exclusively for 
marriage between one man and one woman alone. If you believe the Bible, those are the categories. If you disbelieve the Bible, you lead to all of the confusion in our culture. And what I would say is if everyone on the earth did what Genesis and the rest of Scripture says, and of course we won't, Here's what you would have. You would have uh, no more out-of-wedlock childbirths. You would have no need for abortion. You would have far less divorce. You would eradicate sexual assault victims. You would have far less sexual trauma. You would end human trafficking. You would have no sexually transmitted diseases. And you would have human flourishing at every single level of society. If we did it God's way, things would go great. The further we get from God's divine design, the worse things become and the more human suffering increases. So what I want to do is I want to read for you Genesis 18 and 19. It's a lengthy section of scripture. It's the entire story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And furthermore, as we dig into it, I just want you to hear God's word and then I'm going to unpack it for you. And the Lord appeared to him, that is Abraham, uh, by the oaks of Mamre, a place that we know and monks still live. As he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed down to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and that after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. Now, this is just an interesting approach, just again, just from a preaching perspective. He's going to read all of Genesis 18 and all of Genesis 19. That, that's, that's not a lot of people would do that. You, you, there would be some who would think it's a great thing. There would be some who would argue against it uh, from just a pure preaching style, preaching, you know, just technique. Um, I, it, I think I think it definitely adds the full context. It definitely adds the full context, and it's the reading of God's word. So I think that's all. It's all a great thing. I don't know if I would uh, approach it that way. Maybe, maybe, maybe I should. I, I don't know. I, I I'm gonna I'm gonna consider this approach. And you know, I, I don't think he typically does this, but it's just interesting that here he's reading both chapters before he even starts unpacking it. It is an interesting approach. I would have to, I, I listen to so many sermons and I'm thinking, so maybe, maybe he, ha, maybe, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I, I'm forgetting that he does this all the time, but I, I, I do, I'm taking note of it right here. And well, you can, you can draw your own, what you think about it. Here we go. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah, his wife, and said, quick, uh, three see us, which is two gallons of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herds and took a young, tender and good calf and gave it to the young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, and you shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old and advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? 
The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for I was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Then the men sent out from Now, it is interesting because I, I can almost feel that he wants to do this. But you can feel that he's almost hurrying himself through it, that he's reading it relatively quickly, right? He can't just take the normal pauses like he's just moving through it. He's moving through it, which is one of those things. It may be a great idea, but you also realize I can't take up my entire sermon just reading this. By taking all of the time to read these two chapters, he is going to be left with a limited amount of time to unpack Genesis 19. So it's going to be, I'm really interested where the focus is going to be here. So I can, I think it's a cool idea to read all of it, but you do have to time out. How long is it going to take me to read all of this and how will this impact the preaching of my sermon? Again, I'm just pointing out things just from a, a preaching, teaching perspective that I find interesting. You may not even care one way or the other. I'm just looking at it going, okay, this is going to take a little while. And, uh, I'm looking at the time here. I'm like, okay, he's he's going to take a, a a a chunk of time here to do this. It may be it may be completely the right approach. I just don't know how it will hinder the uh, taking apart the rest of the text. There, and they looked down toward Sodom. So now the scene shifts, and Abraham went with them, set them on their way. The Lord said, "Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised." him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. And we're going to stop right here. Something just like, boom, punched me in the face. Something just hit me. Now, if you remember, in our study of sexual violence in the Bible, if you remember, we spent some considerable time um, in Genesis 16. I believe it was Genesis 16, where Sarai comes up with a plan that because she can have a child, that she gives her uh, Egyptian handmaid, Hagar, to her husband to have relations with. And we looked at that, and from all possible angles, and there's a high probability that what occurred there would have to be almost considered rape, right? Because Hagar would not have had any say-so in the situation, and and everything that happens to Hagar, it's just a horrible story. It's just a horrible story. So a thing that hits me hard in Genesis 19, and I think it should hit all of us, is wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. So the 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 evil of Sodom and Gomorrah, that, that now in a sense gets God's attention. But what happens to Hagar, 
seems to go almost ignored. I'm not saying completely ignored, but I'm just saying that what Abram and Sarai did to Hagar, right? She is used and then Sarai gets upset and all the things that happen there, her and Ishmael are then kind of put out. Everything that happens there is just, it, it, it's, it, it should bother everyone. So many people preach it and it, it doesn't seem sexual violence is not even considered. It's just ignored, right? And it's like, Abraham is just is still kind of seen as the good guy in the situation. Sarai may be like, uh, you know, I don't know so much about her, but Abram is almost considered as the good guy in the situation. And then we get to Genesis 19, like this great wickedness. And then Abram is there trying to kind of make intercession for them. And it's kind of like, well, Abram's got a, doesn't Abram have enough, um, you know, can, or Abraham at this point, doesn't Abraham have, I don't know, I guess a, a major skeleton in his closet with how they treated Hagar? Now, I think the only way to understand this in any meaningful way is Abram is declared righteous, remember, by an imputed righteousness. He was declared righteous by faith. He is seen as being righteous, even though in practice he is very, 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 very ungodly. Now, that doesn't excuse what he did. And I know it bothers a lot of people when they read Genesis. You're like, man, what did Abram and Sarai do to Hagar? That's some really messed up stuff. And they don't ever seem to face any serious consequences. Right? But we get to Sodom and Gomorrah. Boom, that's some messed up. And everybody wants to go, come in with the guns drawn and let's condemn this to the 20th level of hell. But Hagar, or, but Abram is kind of like, you know what you did to Hagar? You know, you know, it, it's okay. It's just weird how we... We do that. What happened to Hagar should bother you. And I think most of the people who listened to that study agreed that, wow, this, I don't like this story. I don't like the story. I don't even like, I don't even want to go back and talk about it. We, we looked at it. I don't have time to review it. It just seems very, it just slaps me in the face. You're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. The, the wickedness of, of Sodom is, is now has arisen the the wicked the, the cry of their wickedness has has been heard well why do I, I think the wickedness of Abram and Sarai should have been heard but then you have to remember Abram is declared righteous by faith not because of his works but because of an imputed righteousness that we receive by faith that that's that's how the New Testament describes Abram that he was declared righteous by faith not by his works because his works are clearly questionable not only his lying, and putting his own wife in danger of sexual violence, his own, I don't know what you want to, I'm going to say sexual violence against Hagar. He's, he's messed up, but he is viewed righteous over and over and over. He's declared, he's viewed as righteous, even though he's not. And that's, that's to me, Christianity that, that's the very basis of Christianity. We are, we are not, we are declared righteous by an imputed righteousness even though we are not righteous in our actions. And for 2,000 years of church history, Christians have demonstrated their lack of righteousness in so many areas of life, but sexual, sexual sin, sexual violence, and all of those things, we're, we've shown our depravity and sinfulness in that time and time again. And I cannot be denied. So I don't know. It just, just jumps out at me because I'm like, so Abraham is involved in this, but man, Abram did some really messed up stuff, but at least here he's, he's, he's trying to intercede. Hey, if, there, if there's 50 righteous, if there's, are you going to wipe out everyone? If there's 50 righteous people there, he, he's, he's now interceding and 
and, and, and pleading with God. All right, here we go. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is right? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Who am I but dust and ashes? Suppose 50 of the five righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose 40 are found there. He said, For the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He then said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak but once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot, that's his nephew, was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself down with his face toward the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly so that they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, this includes minors and children, all the people to the last man surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Same language of Adam knowing his wife Eve. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not yet known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, son-in-laws, sons, daughters, or anyone else in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his son-in-law, who was to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his son-in-laws to be jesting. As the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, up. Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. And the Lord, being merciful to him, uh, brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. 
And Lot said to them, O no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your eyes, and if you have shown great mercy and kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one, and my life will be saved? He said to him, Behold, I will grant you this favor, so that I will not overthrow the city to which you have spoken. Escape here quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar, which means small or little. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire, literally fire and brimstone, from the Lord out of heaven. And the Lord overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked up, and behold, the smoke of the land went up before him like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities in the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up to Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar, so he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is older, and, and there is not a man on earth to come into us the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father." So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know where she lay or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Amai. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. All right, here's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and it's a case study in two families. Both are believing families. So, Okay, now, he took a long time to read all of that, okay? Which again, an interesting approach from a preaching perspective. It, it still, it really is. Um, I don't. I, I like to just walk through the text because, to me, I almost try to preach it like we don't know what's going to happen, right? Like I know, I know. In many cases, when I preach, people know the end of the story, but I like to walk through it like we don't know what's going to happen, and I start asking questions and like this and that, like trying to walk through it that way. Some people like just read the whole thing and like, okay, we all know how this is going to end, and then just start walking through like the major points. I like to approach the story like or reading it like a like a story, right? And and when you read a story, you're like, so, oh, this is interesting. So what do you think is going to happen next? I, I don't know. Different approaches. Everyone has their preferences. No criticism there. Obviously, the goal here is not to criticize. The goal here is just to see how he approaches this text. But uh, yeah, I, I don't know about you. There's a lot of sin, a lot of messed up stuff in Genesis 19. I, I, I again, I know homosexuality gets the the focus here. And not only I do like the fact that he talks about that this is a story of believing families. Again, 
believers, believers, believers in the true God who, once again, demonstrate a lot of brokenness and sinfulness because guess what? The, the people of God show brokenness and sin constantly. And, and so even though we sell it like we don't, it, we do. All right, let's see where, where he takes this. We're not, we, we're not going to obviously finish this, but let's just see how far we can make it. There is Abraham, his wife, and Lot and his wife, and then Abraham and Sarah are going to have a son, Isaac, and Lot and his wife have two daughters. Um, What happened earlier is Abraham was a godless man in a godless place. Uh, He was in what is modern-day Iraq, ancient Babylon. He came from a, a godless family. His dad was an unbeliever, and God showed up and saved him and called him and said, leave your family and go to the land I will show you. I'm going to give you a son, make you a great nation, the nation of Israel. Through that nation will come Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as the blessing and Savior of the nations of the earth. So he went and he took with him his nephew Lot. Lot was uh, his nephew because his brother died, and that was Lot's dad. And so Abraham has some affection for Lot and takes him with him. Uh, Abraham and Sarah demonstrate faith. Lot and his wife, or at least Lot, seems to be a believer, but he's not mature and he's not consistent. What we see in this case study, uh, angels visit both households. Um, Abraham is living in one piece of land. Lot is next door in a place called Sodom. And these three men, we are told, arrive. And then we are told that one of them is the Lord and that there are two angels. And so to summarize this, um, I believe this is two angels, divine beings, and Jesus Christ coming down in what's called a Christophany, an appearance before he was born of the Virgin Mary. So Jesus and two angels show up to Abraham's house. They practice hospitality, welcome them in and care for them. Lot does the same. They don't know it's Jesus. They probably don't even know that it's angels because they appear as men. Hebrews uh, chapter 13 verse 2 says, do not forget to entertain strangers for by doing so some people have entertained angels without knowing it. So they appear as human beings. They are divine beings. Jesus Christ, our creator creator and two angels that are created beings, they go to the homes and they're both welcomed in for hospitality. And so first they go to the home of Abraham and Sarah and they are believers in the Lord. Uh, They worship the Lord. They plant a church. It's called building an altar and they are going to raise their son to live in obedience to God through what was just inaugurated in the previous chapter, the covenant of circumcision. And this is Abraham and the men in his house, as well as the son that would be born into his house, would be circumcised in the flesh to show that they belong to the Lord, but especially their physical pleasures, uh, their sexual desires, their marriages, their children should be consecrated, committed to, devoted to the Lord, because everything God was trying to do through this family would be undone by sexual sin. Conversely, when he, uh, Jesus and the angels shows up uh, at the house of Lot and his wife, they are a less mature family. We're not sure if his wife is in fact a believer. Um, throughout the course of Genesis, they demonstrate um, living by sight, not by faith. And previously, uh, when Abraham and Lot had to determine who was going to take which piece of land because they didn't fit on this same piece of property with their livestock and businesses, what Lot did is he looked at the land that was more green and lush, and he chose that which looked good by sight. Abraham received the promised land, which is now the nation of Israel by faith. And the big idea is this, Lot moved right next to Sodom, that horrific city. 
And at some point, um, there was a, an invasion, a war previously in Genesis. Lot and his family got taken as prisoners of war, taken captive. And Abraham had to ride over 100 miles with 318 mercenaries, bring together the kings of five kingdoms to then wage war and siege um, these enemy combatants to deliver Lot and his family. The whole point is they should have never been near Sodom. They barely got rescued by a military campaign from being prisoners of war. And rather than staying even outside of Sodom where they started, by this time of the story, they moved all the way into Sodom. So now you've got believers living in Sodom. They're the only believers living in Sodom. And it says something curious about this in 2 Peter 2, 7 and 8. It says in the New Testament, Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Here's the big idea. Now, this is a really... <laughs> I, I, I'm, 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 now I'm having a little bit of a struggle here. All right. So he spent a good amount of time reading all of Genesis 18 and Genesis 19. All right, an interesting choice. I probably wouldn't have done it that way, but I, but I, I'm, I'm willing to consider maybe that's the way to do so. Now he's taking a considerable amount of time to review a good portion of the previous. We're really going all the way back to Genesis 12. He's reviewing everything from Genesis 12, really up to Genesis 19. Now. I, I, I can understand why you would want to, but you've read Genesis 18, 19. Now you're doing the review. And the only reason I'm saying, look, Genesis 19 contains a lot of things. Now, maybe I don't think this, I don't think this is labeled as part one. So if this is his entire sermon on Genesis 19, he's leaving himself basically less than 30 minutes or right at 30 minutes now to actually do with anything, do with the to do with anything here, right? It's, it's just really, it's interesting. I, I do love the fact that he's going to, to Peter to demonstrate that Lot is considered a righteous man. I think that's very important to the story, right? Especially when we deal with sexual violence and sexual sin, that, hey, it's a righteous man. It's a godly man who's involved in some really messed up stuff in this chapter, right? Because everyone focuses on the lost people of Sodom and Gomorrah, the homosexuals, but they forget there's a righteous man here who who engages in some pretty messed up stuff himself, right? I think that's a very important part of the story, especially when we're talking about sexual violence and how the church in many cases seems like un, unwilling to talk about these issues. Well, God's people have been dealing with these issues, so we should be willing to talk about it. So th this is taking, this is just an, again, I never know what we're going to hear. I just It's just an interesting approach that he's taking up all of his time really not to deal with the text. So what is he going to say with the text when he finally gets to it? Let's see. Lot moved his family into Sodom. He should have never been there. He stayed there and it bothered him. It troubled him. It disgusted him. And the question is, why didn't he do something? The point is, this is what we all do. There are things that bother us, things that trouble us, things that disgust us, but we're passive, not active. And this is oftentimes the sin of men. This was the sin of Adam back in Genesis 3. This becomes a habitual pattern of sin. Sometimes God's men know what is right, but they allow what is wrong to continue and they don't do anything. And so what happens here, now Lot has waited too long. He's raised his children in Sodom. 
His family has now fully joined the culture of Sodom and God is going to destroy it and he's going to need to deliver them. And Lot is so passive, he has no sense of urgency. Jesus and the angels show up and say, it's all going to be destroyed, get out. The next morning, he's still there. I don't know about you. If God told me I'm going to destroy this whole city, I would leave immediately. This is like you live in the national forest and uh, the government sends out a decree. Hey, there's a forest fire coming your way. Time to evacuate. Get in the car and leave. He apparently gets a good night's sleep, wakes up, and it says that he's sort of conducting affairs normally. And the point is, if you live in Sodom, if you live in a corrupted culture, if you're so overcome by, by sick sexuality and sensuality, you become so desensitized to it that you do nothing and you have no sense of urgency and you're not even aware of the crisis that is impending. And he is a case study in that kind of man. And so it's kind of like the days of Noah. We saw previously everybody was wicked and sinful and God sent Noah and waited 120 years and nobody repented. So only eight people were saved and God judged the world by water. And here God is judging the world by fire. And the conversation is, well, what if there's 50 guys and they keep whittling it down and you realize there's not any righteous people who love the Lord. Nobody there cares. Nobody, nobody's going to get saved. Nobody's going to have a change of heart. And we tend to think that there's, there's good people and eventually we all come around and the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is that's simply not true. So let me say this. Um, the first question that many of you are going to have is, is this a myth? Is this a fairy tale? Is this like the kind of fanciful story that we create to tell children to warn them against bad behavior and to uh, reward them for good behavior? Is this just some mythical tale? Does it have any historical, archaeological, factual evidence? Okay. We are 23 minutes and 34 seconds into a sermon. And we've had Genesis 18 and 19 read to us. We've basically had a review of Genesis 1, all, all, in some ways, Genesis 1, well, not everything, not everything from Genesis 1 to Genesis 19, but a good portion of Genesis 1 to Genesis 19 reviewed. So we've had Genesis 18 and 19 read, and a, basically a review of Genesis 1 through 19. We're at 34 minutes left. <laughs> and now he's going to get to the question, is this a myth? Okay. Now, again, I the, to me, there's, there's some sexual vi violence issues here that need to be discussed. I, I'm assuming he's going to get to them, but he's leaving himself very little time to deal with it. But let's see how he handles this that it existed. It does. Um, scientific Reports was the first to report the findings of an archaeologist named Professor James Kennett, and he's at the University of California at Santa Barbara. So let me just set this up. He's doing uh, an archaeological dig in the same region as Sodom and Gomorrah, and he finds findings from the same time period that report the same results as Genesis. And let me, if I could state the obvious, if you are a professor at a college in the University of California system, you are probably not predisposed toward believing and supporting and defending the Bible. So this is probably not a guy on our team. And so they call the dig Tal El Haman, and we'll show it to you, and we'll show you him, uh, this archaeologist, uh, Professor Kennett, in the archaeological dig. 
There's a debate as to whether or not it is Sodom and Gomorrah because they can't 100% verify it. And I'll tell you why. The big sign out front that said, welcome to Sodom and Gomorrah, got eviscerated. So there's not a lot of archaeological evidence that says Sodom and Gomorrah. But here is what they reported, and I'll just read it to you from the non-Christian source. The biblical sin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah could have been destroyed by a meteor, a meteor cloudburst that incinerated all 8,000 inhabitants. The giant space rock exploded over the town, creating a fireball. Now, there seems to be hard evidence that a, quote, heavenly event really did happen around that time. The cosmic calamity laid waste to the Jordan River Valley's northern shore, raising a huge 100-acre city to the ground. It also exterminated other cities and multiple small villages, as is reported in Genesis. Even at that distance, the blast created a 740-mile-an-hour shockwave. Human remains suggest they had been blown up or incinerated with extreme disarticulation and fragmentation of bones. Quote, we saw evidence for temperatures greater than 2,000 degrees... Celsius, says study lead author Professor James Kennett of the University of California at Santa Barbara. An international team also found building materials and pottery shards melted into glass. Mud bricks had heat bubbles. These are all indications of unusually high temperatures, which would have occurred during the biblical account of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Here's what's interesting. There was no man-made technology at the time that that could have produced such astonishing damage. There is evidence of a large cosmic fireball close to Tal el-Haman, says Professor Kennett. He likens the extraordinary event to the 1908 Tungsta event when a 12-megaton meteor destroyed 800 million trees across 830 square miles of eastern Siberia. The point is, Genesis says it happened. The archaeologists go to investigate, and their conclusion is, that seems like it's exactly what happened. So let's just assume or presume for the moment that what Genesis is reporting is historical, actual, and factual. Then the question is, why would God do that? Even if you're not a Christian, you don't agree with me, you don't believe, just for a moment entertain the storyline of Genesis that this was an act of God, destroying people and also an environment. And the question is, well, what would cause him to be so angry or upset to pour out such extraordinary wrath? We'll have to stop there. Okay. I know that's not where you want to stop, but we're now where he's less than 30 minutes. So clearly I, 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 I'm, my concern is what's going to get the focus is homosexuality, 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 not the absolute insane, crazy actions of Lot. And then not only that, the total complete craziness that happens at the end when Lot's daughters get him drunk and have relations with their own father. You have incest. He's drunk. Okay, that that takes away any consent. So you, do, you, do you refer to that as rape? Well, there, in a legal term, there's no consent. So you basically almost have a, the, the godly man getting drunk and having relations with his daughters. Two times they get pregnant and he offers up his, the godly man offers up his daughters who've never known a man to the men of the city to be used 
in a sexual way. That, like, that, that requires, like, if you're going to focus on homosexuality, okay, if you're going to focus on homosexuality in this story, don't you think the others deserve equal billing as some messed up stuff done by someone referred to in Peter as being a righteous man? Demonstrating that sexual violence and these horrible sins have happened within the world of the righteous, going all the way back to the book of Genesis, as we saw Abram and Abram and Sarai and how how they handled and treated Hagar. We we've seen this. It, it's going to show up over and over in the Bible. But we'll have to stop right there because we're at an hour. He took he took. Uh, I mean, I, the, all the archaeological information is is very in, uh, interesting. I, my professor, um, one of my professors, um, uh, who, who taught the Book of Genesis, he had a jar of basically soil that came from this area where Son Gomorrah supposedly took place, and it was crazy. If you looked at the soil, it just looked like the it looked like the very soil had been burnt. It was it was uh, it was it was really interesting, um, and it was you know from the, the archaeological dig that they had done there. And he was able to get some of the soil. And it was just like, it's hard to even describe what it looked like, but he had it in a jar there in class and we got to look at it. And uh, yeah, so there, there is some archaeological evidence seeming to support the story of Genesis. Archaeologists look for a natural cause. Genesis attributes what happens to God. So however it occurred, though, it occurred. And uh, now the question is... Mark Driscoll is going to leave us with is why did it happen? I think he's going to focus on the homosexuality. I'm not saying that that should be overlooked, but there's some, some other sexual sin and sexual violence going on here. That's absolutely horrific. So why do we always focus on the one? Maybe he's not going to focus on the one. I just know he's going to leave himself literally like about 25 minutes to deal with it. Maybe he's going to just bring everything into it, but uh, we'll see. We'll have to wait till next time. So you can email me your thoughts, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com, and we'll try to make this, um, we'll, we'll make this the very next thing we do. So uh, tomorrow, we'll make this, uh, tomorrow afternoon, starting around three, we'll jump right back into this story and uh, we'll finish this up and we'll see what uh, how Driscoll handles it. We're just looking at how, well, a modern day sermon, a very recent sermon at a very big, a big church with someone well known, how they handle a text that well deals with sexual violence. Because I think in many cases, the churches don't want to deal with some of the issues that need to be dealt with, but you you can, we'll, we'll be able to just see how it all plays out. All right. You can email me newsif at yahoo.com. All right. Everyone have a great night. God bless.